good morning, good day, and good night. You may have stumbled upon this podcast randomly as you browse around a graveyard full of ghouls, driving on an endless road with your killer laying in the back seat, waiting for the right opportunity to slit your throat. Or, you know, just by personal interest. However, what you may not know is what you're about to hear are extremely sinister stories. This show contains all depths of horror that lurks around our society. Kidnapping, torture, murder, you name it. Whether it's down a dark alley or from the pitch black closet in a bedroom. If it's the paranormal that haunts our surroundings or demonic possession that needs to be cleansed. A flying saucer that hovers over our helpless world. These files are for one's understanding, but listener discretion. You are warned. If you wish to be part of the cult, well, not a cult, but family, (laughs) hit the five star in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to wherever you are listening. Now that you are brave enough, are you ready to open these cryptic files? Hello Cryptics, this is your host, Justin. Welcome back to the podcast and I present to you the final Caldwell Fields Murders episode. At least for now. At least for right now. I have spent a large amount of time into this case and I have discovered a handful of things. Many may not be beneficial, but they may have, you know? I've spoken to a lot of people that are passionate about getting this case solved, and I have been passionate with putting my time into helping reach this story out to people who who know about it but forgot, or people who don't know about it. I hope that this has helped, and I hope it continues to help. Like I said, I'm stepping away from this case for now. It isn't leaving my thoughts. I hope to come back to it soon with positive answers. But I'm going to end this series with a positive episode. I finally spoke to ex-cop and Caldwell Fields Facebook group creator Lisa Gardner, who has, ever since Heidi and David's murders, been dedicated to solve this case. She gives me her background through the 12 years and informs me her theory on what really happened and what is going on currently. So, let's get to the discussion. Thank you, Lisa, for being on the podcast. Um, We've been planning to do this, and you're finally here. If you would, introduce yourself, um, the background uh, of your career in the police force. My name is um, Lisa Lucas Gardner, and um, I'm 62 years old, and uh, my family's roots are originally from Giles County, um, I have my ancestors uh, from there who have fought in the American Revolution forward, um, of course, on the Civil War. And so Giles County has always been very uh, important and close to my family. Right. Um, 
I uh, was born in the area, and uh, I didn't spend most of my childhood there. I, I moved up around the Washington, D.C. area, um, but I came back. But anyway, um, I originally went into police work when I was 18 years old, back in, uh, well, that was 1980, I guess, 78 it was, I guess. Right. And um, that was up around Washington, D.C. I was on a police department um, right around D.C. And I was up there for um, 12 years. Then I moved back to Blacksburg, and I went on to the Blacksburg Police Department in uh, 1987, I guess. Okay. Um, after spending a few years with the Blacksburg Police Department, um, I resigned, and I moved to uh, Massachusetts um, to attend college. I attended college, and I majored in American history and English, and then I went on to law school at um, New England Law in Boston. I spent um, three years there in law school, and I got my JD. I have a Bachelor of Arts and a JD. Um, so anyway, once I came back to Blacksburg, um, and this crime happened, I had this background in law enforcement and, and law and being a lawyer and working in legal offices. So that tells a little bit about me, I guess. Right. You've but, been um, you've been everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. My qualifications are quite diverse. I, I've been, you know, Blacksburg's home, and you always come back home, I guess, but I also mm-hmm. I've been a major metropolitan area and worked with police departments and uh, prosecutor's offices. Right. So, um... When this happened, uh, of course, it sent a shock to the community. And it was, it, it was two years after the Virginia Tech massacre. The Virginia Tech massacre really hurt, I mean, the whole nation. But it hurt us personally, those natives who were local to us on Blacksburg. Like, how could this happen in our town? And we were in such a state of shock. But um, when this murder this case these murders happened that really shocked us too because this was like right in our backyard again and such a tragedy and a place that we have known all of our lives and places that we visited um it was sort of like unreal it couldn't possibly happen again yeah so i took it personal because this happened at my home and my ancestors and everybody in my family, it's like right there, so it was really personal that we were going to do something to find the person who did this, or the persons that did this, yeah. um, especially these kids. Heidi and David were, they were just like innocent, perfect kids. They were, I look at it like sacrificial lambs. They, they didn't really have a blemish. They weren't drinking, they weren't smoking or partying or engaged in sex or anything bad. Yeah. And they were just wonderful human beings. So how I got started, um, the very next morning I went down there um, afterwards, after the crime scene had been cleared and everything, and it was just sort of surreal. Mm -hmm. It was peaceful and quiet, beautiful. Um, you've shown the area called Wells Field. I, I don't think that there's a better place um, to have peace and tranquility and really to have your last place on earth be something so beautiful. Right. So when I pulled into the parking lot, there wasn't anything there uh, that was visible, no crime scene tape or anything. It's as if nothing had ever happened there. But as I looked at the area and I started to inspect place. Um, the only thing that I saw was some uh, broken glass. Um, when you break a windshield to a car, it doesn't shatter. It's like safety glass. It hangs together. Yeah. But if you break uh, a side window, it shatters into a lot of pieces. Okay. Um, so there was um, some glass still on the gravel there. Um, I didn't see anything other than that, I didn't see any blood or anything like that or any remnants of uh, any crime scene mm-hmm. Um. So, what was your like first steps after that? Well, um, right away, I created uh, the Caldwell Fields Murder Facebook page. Now, this is 12 years ago. Yeah. You know? 
Um, everybody does Facebook now, but not everybody did Facebook back then. Right. Um, and uh, I just put it out there hoping that somebody would say something or drop a hint or a clue. Um, and I got on there saying, you know, somebody knows something, and while it's still fresh in our mind, you know, think about it. Think of somebody that may have done this or could have done this. Is anybody acting strange? Are they very nervous? Um, did they have a rifle that suddenly has disappeared? Did they have some personal belongings that belong to Heidi? Um, I mean, they have to have some sort of uh, nervousness or guilty conscience a little bit. Um, and there has to be a family member or friend or some sort of relationship that notice that this person is really acting hanky right now. Yeah. So I thought somebody would say something. Um, um, can I ask you if this engagement story is true or not? Have... No, 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 no. I don't even know where that came from. Right. <laughs> That's so bizarre. That was a shock to me. It wasn't any kind of engagement. Right. Um, now, at the time, I had friends still on the Sheriff's Department and on uh, Blacksburg Police Department. So I was able to talk to them and um, we discussed details of the case um, and I guess that's where I had some insight into things that the general public didn't have. Yeah. But the engagement story, no, what I had understood is that Heidi had just changed or decided to change her major to pre-med or whatever. Correct. Heidi and David grew up together in their teens in the church groups and things like that. They, they were sweethearts and um, they were really excited to start their lives together at Virginia Tech. Yeah. And at this point in their lives, their primary goal or focus was education. There wasn't any marriage or anything like that planned. That's what uh, I got. Sure they yeah. Cause... <laughs> they probably would have ended up getting married, but right at the time when you're in college, you're, you're thinking about your schooling and stuff. You're not thinking about getting married. Right, right. Um, or any proposal. Uh, formally, um, I feel like I feel like it would have been said if it was a proposed because that was new to me when I found out that that was a <laughs> well, theory. It's, it's, when you found out, you found out nothing because it's not true, right? Yeah, I mean, somebody could say anything, and I'd like to know the source of that. But um, they were just going to have David had been to Caldwell Fields before mm-hmm. years ago uh, with a church group of some sort of. Um, outing with some sort of church group um, and he thought it was just a wonderful beautiful place and he was going to share that place with Heidi and they were planning on going out there spending some time together David had a guitar with him um, there was even somebody said that they were thinking about having a little campfire or something and just spending time together um, and savoring the moment I guess in the future of them starting uh college courses in a few days mm-hmm. and discussing uh, Heidi's pre-med uh, plans. Um, but it, was, it wasn't anything special other than David sharing that moment and that place yeah. with Heidi. And you mentioned the uh, religious group that he was involved with. I think that gets confused with Camp Tuckaway because I spoke right. no. to Roy yesterday yeah. and yeah. he said David was never involved with Camp Tuckaway. Right. No, um, we'll, we'll talk about Camp Tuckaway, too, but no, it was not a, a, associated with Camp Tuckaway. Right. Uh, David had not been to te- Camp Tuckaway, and it was just another church group organization trip uh, somewhere along the way. Right. I'm glad I'm glad we uh, set the record straight for that because um, yeah. I'm glad Roy reached out and informed me on that. <clears throat> right. Um. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Tuckaway right now. Tuckaway has nothing to do with this case at yeah. all. Uh, Tuckaway happens to be there. It happens to be a religious group, uh, camp, uh, retreat type of place. But David hadn't been there. They had not been there. And there was nothing in the investigation anywhere that tied Tuckaway to this. And even um, a friend of mine that lives on Caldwell Fields, she's an older lady, she's lived there all of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing bad about Camp Tuckaway, and there's no rumors or anything associated at all with Camp Tuckaway. Oh, that's good. Okay. 
So, um, were you, uh, I guess, helping out with the investigators at that time? Well, what I was hoping to do, when you have a case like this, um, you want to try to come at it as many different angles as you can, just like right now with your podcast. Mm-hmm. Any way that we come at this case and investigation, we can develop different sources of information or clues, and and that's good. Um, the police really don't like me, <laughs> I guess, because I, I step on too many toes right. and I say things that they don't want me to say. Mm-hmm. And I also challenge their authority um, because I'm an ex-police officer and I have a law degree. So I, I know how they think and what they do. Right. So they weren't really saying, hey, Lisa, hey, great to have you back here. We appreciate your help. They yeah. were actually... Um, the opposite. Right. They didn't want me to find out anything or to get anything that they didn't have mm-hmm. or couldn't have. But a lot of people don't want to talk to the police. They'd rather talk to somebody um, outside of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the door that I was opening yeah. to say, hey, if, you, if you're afraid of the cops or you don't want to be associated with the police, you can talk to me and I can pass it on to them. And over the years, that's kind of what has happened. Right. Um, so, you have a specific, uh, I don't know if it's a, your, your thoughts on what actually happened. Um, could you okay. elaborate on what you feel like what went down and yeah, yeah. what is yeah, sure. going on now? Right. Um, at first, my first instinct was, well, of course, it's such a horrendous crime and such innocent victims, I guess. It's like, who could do this? Or what would do this? Yeah. How could you do this? This is just unheard of. And then it was, as I said, sort of personal. But um, my first instinct was, okay, they were going to go out there and just have spend some time together. It wasn't anything, you know, special or they weren't, like I said, partying or they weren't engaged in sex or anything that any kind of person would be mm-hmm. outraged or interested. The one thing that I know about us local people, especially the more country people in uh, the rural areas around Virginia Tech, is there's a little bit of animosity between the local community and Virginia Tech students. And the local community kids or teenagers or young people, um, and I'll even say it, you can say it if you're one, uh, the rednecks. Yeah. You know, uh, the rednecks kind of like don't like Virginia Tech students because they always get away with things and mommy and daddy have money and they have stuff and they're smarter than them and kind of a sense of jealousy or outrageous. If you come here and you guys think that you're something. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that's always been like that. It still exists right now. Yeah. So, so that's why I, I kind of thought maybe that it was just um, and also good old boys or redneck folks or whatever were used to partying and driving around and drinking and you know, we got guns in our trucks and our cars just a common thing all the time mm-hmm. to have a rifle, you know, with a gun rack in the back of your pickup truck window and um, good old boys driving around at night and drinking and partying and doing mischievous things like going down the road and with a baseball bat and uh, hitting mailboxes and right. other things right. like that. <laughs> you know, it's just fun and games um, to, to a certain point. So I think the person or persons, I think there was one person, and maybe that's why we haven't been able to get any loose lips over the years, why somebody hasn't said anything or came forward for the reward. I think it was one person, but maybe two, who knows. Um, From what I was told, um, Heidi and David were there, and... They did not pull in on the person. 
if the person was there, I don't think that they would have pulled in there right, right up against them. You right. know, especially if you have, maybe it is a drunk redneck guy in a pickup truck with a rifle. <laughs> I don't think they would have stopped. Right, right. Um, so my, my idea is they got there and then somebody pulled in on them. Okay. Now, from what I understand, um, David, well, first off, the windows were probably closed and the doors were probably locked because one shot did bust out, I think, the passenger side window of Heidi's door. The glass had been shattered. Mm-hmm. But anyway, say your doors are locked and the windows um, are up. David was shot once in the chest through the windshield, through the front windshield while he was sitting behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. So... David was shot and killed immediately, and of course, Heidi began to panic, and I don't know, uh, if the guy had planned on uh, raping Heidi, I don't think he would have shot her in the car. Right. I mean, I, I think he probably would have let her live and, and pulled her out of the car and did whatever he was going to do, but Heidi was first shot in the car. Um so a shot hit her in the car, and it hit her in the hand or the wrist area, as if maybe perhaps she was holding her hands up, you know, to shield the shot, you know. Maybe he was aiming for her head or her face, and she put the hand up, and that hit her first inside the car. So that's why I don't think he was there for a sexual assault or something. Right. Um so at that point, she started to scramble, of course, and freak out and try to get out of the car or whatever. I think one of those shots uh, busted out the window. She was able to get out of the car or scramble away partially out of the car close by. And then the guy actually approached her and shot her right in the face mm. with a 30-30 rifle, yeah. um, which is so disturbing because... If she was running away, you know, you would have shot her in the back or in the back of the head or something, but mm-hmm. he didn't. I mean, she was shot in the face, so he had to be looking at her eye to eye. And, and you know, it all happened probably in a matter of uh, a minute, you know. Yeah. Uh, but she was shot and killed outside the car. Um, so that's, that's the tragedy of the thing. Now, the guy... Uh, Whatever happened, you think this happened in a matter of just a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. And the sound of the gunshots. Now, you have one for David, one for the hand, one for the face, and if there's any more, at least three. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound of the gunshots would not have alarmed anybody in the area. Right. Um, we'll talk about that. But um, the guy actually... If there's one person or two persons, what did the other person do if there was another person there? I don't know. Um, but I don't know if he would have let him, his friend, do what he was doing. You know, he may have stopped him, like, man, let's get out of here. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so Heidi, um, you know, she laid there, and, and David was dead, apparently. Um, the guy even picked up the shell cases. On the rifle. So you had at least three shell casings. He took the time or knew or had the composure about himself to pick up the shell casings. Right. And he also had the composure and the time to get Heidi's personal belongings. Um, now, at that time, there was no cell phone coverage. It called it field. It was too isolated. Yeah. But the cell phone, the, the camera, the camera, you know, was kind of interesting because... That reminds you sort of like a, a serial killer yeah. who wants trophies or wants those pictures or those cameras, pictures, or he's afraid that she took pictures with the cell phone or with the camera, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't want to leave that evidence behind. Yeah. Um, and her Virginia check landed with her ID on it. Yeah. I didn't hear about a keychain. I just heard about her Virginia check landed. That's kind of personal, too. It's like, why would you want that? associated with Virginia Tech and with her personal ID to remind yourself of what you did to this girl. Right, right. So these, these things tend to lead toward thinking about a serial killer who wants trophies of things to remind himself. Um, 
of the person that he killed. But then again, nothing was taken of David's that, uh, that I've heard of. Why is um, that, do you think? Well, I don't know. This guy may have had some kind of special hatred or enraged whatever against um, the girl, mm-hmm. a woman, a female. Um, and, and if he has any tendencies of being a serial killer, wanting these personalized things. Of, but he killed David, too. So why didn't, if he was a serial killer... Why didn't he take trophies from David? Yeah. So that sort of like disclaims like, well, no, it's not a serial killer then. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it might have been a good old boy, a redneck guy who really pissed off at his girlfriend or had a fight, he's drunk or whatever, or he hates women, who knows? Yeah. But he definitely targeted Heidi Moore and did the... Uh, awful thing of shooting her in the face and taking her things which makes you feel that he was his anger or whatever was directed toward the female yeah so, so after, we were talking about the, gun, the gunshots you know the one thing that we wanted to talk about was the gunshots yeah this was the end of August of course hunting season it doesn't open until November but mm-hmm. it's very common for guys around there um, even myself, who have firearms, um, to have a weapon in the vehicle. Yeah. And, of course, up at the beginning of uh, Craig Creek Road at 460 is the rifle range. Mm-hmm. And this was another theory. They said, well, maybe it was somebody at the rifle range who had been fighting in their rifle, and they came down that way. But the whole idea is, again... Um, Usually rifle range people are pretty cool. I mean, they're not drunk rednecks. You're not allowed to be up there being drunk and shooting, you know, going crazy. Yeah, you got to be professional. <laughs> right. You know, you got, you got other, other people up there. It, it's an unmonitored range. There's no one there to sign you in or sign you out. At least back then there wasn't. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any cameras. It's not a locked gate. It's not patrolled very often. So it's kind of like an honor system of you come and go and, and, and do your thing. Um, so, I don't know. It, it's not uncommon for someone to be up there shooting and somebody to be driving around with a rifle in their, in their vehicle. Yeah. Probably a truck, most likely. You don't see too many people running around with a 30-30 in their car. Right. It's too, too awkward to get to in the back seat or in their trunk or whatever, but it's very common. Yeah. So that's why another thing I believe is probably a truck involved, a, a good old boy or a redneck in a truck and, you know, uh, a rifle in there would be fine. Because there's so many... Um uh different vehicles that i saw that could possibly be the one but uh mm-hmm. a truck does make more sense yeah it just makes more sense that you know they were sitting there and this guy pulled in in his truck um you know it's like what's going on now they saw this guy with the right you know it's gonna if he's in a car it's gonna take him 20 or 30 seconds to get to that rifle, yeah. you know, to get it out of out of the back seat or out of the trunk or out of the case or whatever he has it in. But of course, if he pulled in and they saw this guy in the truck and they saw that rifle up on the back or whatever, he got out quickly. Um, we don't know if there was any confrontation between them, if there was any, you know, um, I still don't have any idea where the DNA came from, if there is any DNA. Yeah. Um, you know, because I don't believe that there was any um, cross-contamination between him touching her or them or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And also, they didn't say that there was DNA initially. That came out a couple of years later. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe that's just a scare tactic. Maybe they're just saying that or releasing that to try to get the suspect nervous or get him to come forward or make a confession. Um or then some people said, well, maybe it's just enough DNA, not enough DNA for, uh, you know, some sort of examination. However, you don't need much. Yeah. So whatever they have, if they have it, they should have been able to run it. Or also now with the family DNA mm-hmm. um, technology, 
yes. that has come about now compared to 12 years ago, they should have been able to trace a family member through the DNA. That's so I don't even know. When I first, you know, started looking into this case, I always thought that they did have DNA, but later on, you know, near the end of my research, I'm like, did they really have DNA, though? Cause right, that's what I think, too. Do they really have it? Why didn't they say it in the first place? Why did it take a couple of years if they didn't get a result if they had it, and then why? Would they say they had it if they didn't? And and now I'm thinking with the family relations DNA testing, I don't think they had it. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your opinion, how do you think this case gets solved? Well, here's the thing. I think the reward started out like at fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. Went up to seventy thousand or something, and then when it went up to one hundred thousand. I thought for sure. <laughs> I mean, somebody would turn their mother in for a hundred thousand dollars. You know, come on. So if it's a friend or a buddy uh, that knows about this, then I thought the reward is sure, surely going to get this guy. Especially if you're just a redneck good old boy. I mean, heck, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And and then if you're afraid of this person. Um, you could get like witness protection program, you know, whatever. Exactly. You know, it's not like this guy's part of the mafia, you know, that has a network of people that's going to come and get you. Mm-hmm. you. You tell who he is, you get the $100,000, you say, put me in witness protection and get me out of here or whatever. The guy's going to be locked up or killed, you know. So you don't have to worry about him. Um, so loose lips sink ships. Usually people run their mouths or say something and make a mistake if there's more than one person. Mm-hmm. That's another reason why I think there was only one person is because whoever may have been with them by now probably would have said something or, or to somebody, you know, to your wife, your girlfriend, your mom, somebody. Yeah. Um, and the same way with him, um, whoever he is, um, you think over the years, I mean, maybe somebody, maybe he has Heidi's stuff tucked away in his underwear drawer. Who mm-hmm. knows? Yeah. You know, sooner or later, maybe he kept Heidi's stuff, but he had to destroy it or get rid of it somewhere, maybe in a landfill somewhere. But um, if nobody came forward at the time and noticed anything different about the person, the way he was acting, or he had this rifle and now it's gone, or because of um, ballistics, he didn't want to keep it. He destroyed this stuff. Um, they should have noticed it. Somebody should have noticed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently it didn't. Um, but the way it's going to be solved, I believe, um, is he's going to make a mistake. Um, he's going to eventually, um, hopefully it's not a deathbed confession or something, Somebody's going to find a piece of evidence or he's going to um, say something that somebody puts two plus two together and says, hmm, that's it. But my theory is we already know who the guy is. Right. We know who he is. Um, but there's a difference between evidence to arrest somebody probable cause to arrest somebody it's just kind of like suspicion yeah. you have a little bit of evidence to, to say hey maybe this guy did it but it's not enough evidence to get a conviction in court beyond a reasonable doubt and you only have one chance at that one opportunity because of double jeopardy right if you arrest the guy and you go to trial and you don't you know make the uh case of saying beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, the guy will be acquitted. You can't charge him again. You can't come back five years later and say, oh, we found the rifle. We know it's him. No, you can't charge him again. Right. So he gets off shot free. So I think who we think did it um, has now it's 12 years later. If he was 20 years old, he's now 32, of course. If he was 25, you know, 37, that's it. Yeah. He has gone on with his life. Um, who I think it is, is married. 
He has children. He has a career. And he's just an average middle-aged guy living a normal life. Hmm. Um, the evidence that they have, they know it's him, but it's not enough to get a conviction. It's, it's just the waiting game. Yeah, it's right. It's a waiting game to get enough to tip the scale for sure. If you think about this case, when it happened, it wasn't really a big deal. Right. Uh, I mean, it's like it happened, but it wasn't outrage and uproar. Um, I have a little bit of a side story here. Um, okay. I was an Uber driver in Blacksburg, and uh, I was driving a guy one time, and a professor, and I was telling, talking to him about uh, Caldwell Fields and everything, and so the guy said, can I share something with you? And I was like, oh, huh, here it is, break the cage, he's going to tell me something about, you know, I was really excited, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, my name is Clay, and I was the only survivor. Or I was the only one that didn't get shot in that classroom that day. Mm. And I was, I was like, what? Mm. Wow. So this boy was one of the people that did not get hit in the, in the shooting at Virginia Tech in the classroom. Right. But I felt so sad for him and, and just like, oh my God, to be laying there and everybody else is shot around you. And, yeah. Uh, but what he said, he had an insight. He said... I think this crime was overshadowed because of the Virginia Tech shooting. Right, right. The Virginia Tech shooting happened two years before, and it was still such an outrage that this is not really any, it's not worse than what happened. And his idea, he felt kind of sad for them because they didn't get the publicity. They didn't get the attention because of the Virginia Tech shootings. Yeah. Now, because of that also, you think about Virginia Tech itself. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have said maybe it's a cover-up. Maybe um, they know who it is, but they don't want to say. They don't want the publicity. Virginia Tech itself, the, co- the institution, um, if it got out that Blackstone has all of these murders and all of this craziness going on, no one's going to want to go to school there. Yeah. And those parents are going to want to send their kids there. Yeah. Especially if you have them slaughtered, and then you've had these two kids that were slaughtered, and then you've had these other murders that happened there. Virginia Tech does not want this to get out. Hmm. Virginia Tech does not want the publicity. Virginia Tech, they didn't even come out to the memorial services each year. They never sent any flowers out there. They sort of forgot that Heidi and David were Hokies. And that's really disappointed me that Virginia Tech itself did not take responsibility for those kids being out there or um, what happened to them. They didn't, they didn't make a big deal out of it. Right. Um, another thing I saw is if this happened, don't you think they'd be jumping up and down and warning people, don't go out there. Yeah. Don't go to the Caldwell Field. Don't go to Pandacus Pond. Don't go to Cascades. Don't go to the Appalachian Trail. Don't go to any of those places because we've got a madman on the loose. It would make sense. <laughs> yeah, he's still out there. And, I mean, I didn't want my son and his girlfriend going over there. Yeah. Because this is some coop. If he's over there running around Donald County loose, um, you think that they would make a big deal out of it. They never did, mm-hmm. and they never have. They don't mention that he's still out there running around because I believe they know who he is, they know where he is, and they're not afraid. They're not a, uh, scared that he's going to do it again. Right. So um, they're keeping an eye on him, I'm sure. Um, the only other person I think that may know something is his now wife. Mm-hmm. But that 12 years ago, who knows if she was around or if they were dating then, or he just moved away and started a new life with a new woman that doesn't even know anything about the Caldwell Field. Yeah. 
But of course, we know that there's that marital privilege that a wife doesn't have to testify against the husband. Correct. So even if she knows something, she can't be forced to testify. But if she does know something and she finds out it was him, I mean, he's going to be killed and her children's father is going to be gone. And why would she want to say something? Right. Um, or he may kill her. So I don't think until this guy dies, you know, I don't know if they'll ever get the information and find out or get enough to, to make the conviction. So the idea is don't worry, don't be afraid, don't be scared. We know who it is. Uh, we don't have to sound the alarm. We don't have to publicize it anymore. We don't have to do anything for this case. It's a closed case except for getting that one shred of evidence to give enough for a conviction. Right. Well, I'm glad that you expressed all of your 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 backstory and your journey through this this case um thank you for doing this i'm sure a lot of people were expecting to hear from you <clears throat> well, you know i've gone out there every year and had a candlelight business for them and left you know remember and um i've honored them and at times when I first went out there at times on the anniversary date nobody's been there except for me yeah and I've been afraid because if this guy used a high tower rifle don't you want to get rid of me because I'm the I'm the troublemaker I'm the one stirring the pot right and I'm the one who's saying things and I thought you know he's going to blow my head off right here right. <laughs> I'm just sitting here by myself he's up there in the woods in the bushes he's got a bead on my head right now I could be killed, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I've been afraid or scared, but I've, I've had to do it, and I've done it for 11 years, and this is the first year I haven't done it. Um, and I've, I've moved to Mexico. I'm actually in Mexico right now, but um, it's still on my mind about every day. And one thing, I did, um, I did talk, uh, or chat with uh, Heidi's mother a few times mm-hmm. online. And over the years, one thing I mentioned to her was that I wanted to write a book. I said, okay, there's another another avenue. Write a book, you know? Yeah. Get it out there any way we can for somebody to say, aha, just like you're doing with the podcast. You know, maybe it'll reach somebody. And so I told Heidi's mom, I said, I, I think I should write a book. And I was hoping she would say, yes, that's a great idea. You know, I agree. Um, but she kind of told me, no, um, that's not a good idea. And they wouldn't like that. Hmm. Meaning the, the police or the investigators. If don't tip off the suspect. Don't reveal things that the suspect doesn't know that they know. Mm-hmm. So she, out of her request of saying no, she really did want a book to be written. I didn't write a book. Yeah. Um, and right now, that's why I'm thinking she's not outraged and her father or the, the other parents, they're not outraged because that piece that they know what's going on and they know who it is and Heidi and David are in heaven together and so it's just like we just gotta lay low and, and be cool and sooner or later and everybody is safe we don't have to worry about anything happening to anybody else yeah so um but people like you I hand the torch to you and, and you'll hand it to somebody else and other people come up but these wild theories or ideas or rumors and things like that I think it's time, you know, to say, no, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Right. And the cops are so quiet about it. Oh, by the way, there is a a secret grand jury that I was uh, subpoenaed to. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a grand jury, a federal grand jury, um, that uh, is put together 
And usually a grand jury isn't put together unless they're presented with evidence to make an indictment. So this kind of told me if there's a grand jury that's put together and it's secret, the cops don't even know um, who is subpoenaed to it. Um, they have to have something. They're hoping that whoever they subpoena to it gives them enough evidence to make the indictment. Yeah. To say, hey, this is the person that just gave us that one piece of evidence that we can now issue an indictment. And that didn't happen with me. They were more concerned with what I knew and who I got the information from. A couple of the police officers have died now. Um, there's one major investigator that I've talked to. He's a friend of mine, but he can't tell me anything because he's kind of sworn to secrecy and privacy. Yeah. Um, he's not allowed to talk about the case. And he's like, Lisa, I'd love to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you anything. <laughs> right. So uh, if there's this grand jury out there and they're not issuing uh, warnings or telling people, be afraid, be scared, hey, we need something, everything is just status quo right now. Mm-hmm. And I, as far as I'm concerned, it's solved, but it's not solved to the point that they have evidence for conviction. Right. Well, in a sense, that is good news, but it's sad that it's still the waiting game. Right. Exactly. I mean, you want closure? Well, the parents kind of have closure except for justice. Yeah. We, we have closure. We know who it is. They're... All you need is gone. They're in heaven. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But us, we want justice. Yeah. We want the eye for an eye. Uh, you know, we have to have justice in our society. And we're not going to be satisfied until we do. Same with the cops and law enforcement people. They don't talk about it anymore. Yeah. You don't see Hank Carton walking up and down the road with a sign, you know. They, they put up that one billboard. Mm-hmm. over there in Giles, but it's like a big deal. Yeah. But um, they want to do something, and uh, I don't know, too bad it isn't like Clint Eastwood with Magnum Force or something out there, you know, yeah, yeah. to make my dad, he knows who the guy is, and he doesn't have any conscience at all about taking care of him. Yeah. You know, that's hard for a cop. I'm sure. I'm sure it's hard for the cops not to go and track this guy down and know where he is and not want to do make an end to it for justice. Yeah. But that tells you something about how they're not corrupt and how they do have a sense of morality that that's not allowed. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Lisa... Anyway, everybody else, just, just settle down, calm down. Yeah. I think, uh, as it says, nothing to be freaking out or anything about it anymore. And um, and if somebody does have that one shred of evidence, that's why we got to keep it open because we got to let people talk about it to say, hey, exactly. somebody, man, come forward, give us that evidence. Take that money and run, you know? Yeah. Um, or the guy, usually, there's no honor among thieves. Well, there's no honor among criminals either. Sooner or later, this guy is going to piss somebody off or they're going to say, that's it, I'm saying or I'm telling. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So, you keep doing what you're doing, and maybe we'll get that one piece of evidence to tip the scale. Well, and I'll be here in Mexico, and I'll be <laughs> watching. Hey, hey, hey. Well, Lisa, thank you, thank you, and you're helping. You're helping the podcast out. You're helping this case out still, even though you're in Mexico. <laughs> um, yeah, man. I'll never. I, you know, I don't. I will not rest. <laughs> Yeah. It's probably the one thing that's going to bother me until my dying day. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for the for calling me and uh, being on the podcast. I'm sure, like I said, a lot of people have been wanting to hear from you. Um, we'll keep in touch. Okay, Justin. I'll be, I'll be right here for you. All right. Thank you so and much. Thank, thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye.
That was Lisa Gardner, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Lisa, for being on the show. It's nice to hear her confidence in this case. If her story is true, the police are watching this guy. And they are watching him close. He will slip up. He will make a mistake. And justice will be served. Once and for all. I would like to thank you all for listening and supporting the show. It means a great deal. I love that you all take time out of your life to listen to me dive into these horrific stories. I really hope this research spreads awareness to this case and bring more attention to what needs to be done. Heidi and David didn't deserve this. They are somewhere together knowing that you all support them and want justice. We will see justice. And so will they. Watch your back. It's cryptic out there. Don't give up on me